Amen. All right, I've given you some handouts. I'd like you to follow them. And like I said, we're going to move on. This is somewhat of a lecture, if you will, but I want to educate you and I want you to see what God has done through this marvelous land called the United States of America. We're going to look at the seven principles of the Judeo-Christian ethic, but before we get there, I need to lay some groundwork for you as an introduction so that you begin to see how the nation was formed and why specifically it was formed. So, I'm going to move along in our outline. The United States of America established its system of government whereby the laws of the government are instituted to protect the inalienable rights of individual citizens as declared by the Sovereign Lord, by God Himself. So, let's get into some definitions first of all. And I start with the definition of laws. What are laws? Laws are codified ethics or rules of conduct that distinguish between right and wrong. The reason I start with law before we start with government is because law started before human government. God established laws within nature and within man in creation. How many of you know that? I mean, if you jump off a building, what law are you going to be introduced to? Right? I mean, there are natural laws, and within that, in the creation process, God ordained laws and principles. So laws came before governments. And then once he established laws in the garden and man began to grow as a society, he gave authority to government to exercise or deliver those laws one to another. The question here is then, who defines what's right and wrong? And that's a very important question for the United States of America. We were founded on the principle that God established laws and we're to follow His laws. If you remove God from the process, who then determines what is right and wrong? Public consensus? Well, then we're in trouble, aren't we? And opinion? What is the seat of authority for governing a people? And so we've got to watch that. Where do our source of ethics and morals come from? And the Founding Fathers knew that it had to absolutely come from the Sovereign Lord. Now we look at government. Government is the power that regulates the laws that govern a society or a group of people. Government is ordained of God. Romans 13 says that God gave the authority of the sword to the government to live peaceable lives so that we could have peace in a society and so that the government would enforce the laws for peace and harmony and the well-being of that society, right? Amen? So we have those laws and we have government to do it. But what's important is, what is the authority over that government? We're going to talk about that a lot tonight. What is the Judeo-Christian ethic that we are saying was the establishment of the laws of the United States or the government of the United States? The Judeo-Christian ethic is the influence of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament on one's system of values, laws, and ethical codes. What we're saying is that the God of the Bible is the one who establishes the rule of law and authority and power for government to run properly. And that's what the Judeo-Christian ethic declares. It is by the Word of God. So let's go into this a little deeper, shall we? Let's look at our history, if we will. Now, where do we get the idea of a democracy? that people have a right to speak and vote. You look at Greek and Roman history and we see that democracy started 
in Greek, uh, Greece and in the Roman Empire with the Senate and uh, it, it lapsed into the authority of Caesars and then it was brought back in power struggles back to the Senate and elected representatives. And so we have an idea that our democracy was established in that manner. But what I like to share with you is, in fact, probably the greater influence on American culture is from John Calvin and the Calvinists or Reform Doctrine. If you understand history, you'll see that John Calvin's influence was huge. And let me tell you why. John Calvin was a pastor in Geneva, Switzerland, one of the oldest republics that there was. And the city officials elected John Calvin to run or, or be the pastor of that city. And what Calvin did was develop a Judeo-Christian biblical ethic for ruling a society, and he developed that ethic. Now, that's important because this comes about the same time as the Reformation, and it had a huge influence on, obviously, Lutherans and Zwingli in Switzerland, and uh, eventually John Knox in Scotland, and it developed the Presbyterian Reformers. And so, why would that have an influence? Well, consider where most of the colonists came from. They came from Europe that was influenced by the Protestant Reformation, and they attended the college that were, colleges that were founded in the United States. Guess by whom? The Reformed theologians. Uh, as a matter of fact, we know that 29 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence attended these Christian seminaries or colleges. Now there's debate over that. Those who are opposed to this Judeo-Christian idea said, uh, uh, Barton says that they studied in seminary. They, they actually didn't study to be pastors, the 29 of them, but the point being is they attended these colleges that were established as Christian schools, so they certainly got instructed in reform doctrine and Calvin's teaching on government. In fact, they went to Princeton, Harvard, Yale, William and Mary, Cambridge and Oxford, all of them Calvinist reform schools. So they learned the doctrine of Calvin concerning government and authority. By the 1750s, the Presbyterians formed one of the largest church groups in the colonies. And they didn't trust leadership from one person, whether a form of church government, bishops, or a form of government which was a monarchy or a king. So the colonial Presbyterians were ripe for a change in government from the monarchy of England to a representative government in the United States of America. In fact, what many commentators tell us is that the leading power behind the revolution were the black-robed unit. And who were the black-robed people? The pastors, the preachers. They would wear black robes when they would preach. And most of the preaching in the churches was Calvin's reform doctrine concerning the, the government, the proper government under a Judeo-Christian principle. And so they were done with monarchies and, and church hierarchies that had one person running things. And because of Calvin's teaching on the depravity of man, we knew that we can't give all power to one man. There must be checks and balances. And that's why our government was established the way it was. Ministers at the time of the revolution were simply preaching in what they had already been culturally saturated by Calvin in for 150 years prior to the revolution. 
By 1860, 91% of all university presidents were ministers of the gospel, as were more than one-third of university faculty ministers. Most universities were affiliated with a denomination, and by 1884, 83% of America's 370 colleges continued a denominational affiliation. That's all the way up into 1884. What's happened to Yale, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge? What's happened to those universities? They have been handed over to a secular society. And that's sad. But those were the reasons Calvin and the Judeo-Christian ethic had a huge impact on America. Calvin's views regarding government stemmed from his belief that man is depraved. Therefore, it's necessary for a civil government that's ordained by God to govern men by godly principles through his overarching providence. Calvin believed that God was sovereign over all things, including governments. So the founders believed that the United States was an exceptional nation empowered by the providence of God to bring democracy, liberty, and Christian redemption to the world. The founders clearly understood that these man-made institutions were ultimately subject to God and His law, and no leader or citizen was to be exempt. They saw the Americas as an opportunity for the providence of God to spread liberty, democracy, and freedom to the whole world in the name of Christ. That's why you see the Ten Commandments chiseled on the walls. That's why you see verses from the Old Testament and the New Testament over all the monuments and everywhere. They believed that the Judeo-Christian ethic and the Word of God, His Scripture, was in fact the ruling force that was going to be freedom, bring freedom to the whole world using the United States. And we were on that path for a while. But you know what? We can get back on that path. The amazing thing about the United States is that all of this is within our recorded history, recorded documents, and it is declared by those early founders that all of this should be unto the glory of God. Now, we may be going astray now, but we can go back on course to the original purpose of, as a nation if believers will stand up and reclaim our purpose as a nation. Amen? The concept of the republic form of government governed both rulers and citizens as equal under God's law. What's important to understand is that America is a republic. It was established as a, repu a republic, elected officials, so that there would be no overarching power or, uh, to one party or one person. And by it being a republic, therefore, leaders and citizens are all equal in responsibility to the laws of God. That's why it was established that way. And in order to prove this, many of us think that the United States is, is a democratic society. It is a republic form of democracy. So what I'd like you to do right now is stand with me, say the Pledge of Allegiance, so you can get the concept that we are a republic designed so that we would give honor and glory to God. So let's recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic 
for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You may be seated. Now hopefully through this month you're going to gain and grasp a deeper understanding of what that means. Now, let's go to the Declaration of the Independence. I want you to see, we've also handed out the Declaration of Independence to you. Let me read to you the beginning of that. What is amazing about the Declaration of Independence is the appeal. Now, you've got to get the understanding behind this. The, the leaders, the founding fathers, were appealing to all the nations of the earth at that time, to the human court of all humanity, appealing to the authority of God as the sovereign creator over all the earth. And that's what they were appealing to. Listen to what they say. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitles them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. The Declaration then goes on and lists all the reasons why these United States need to separate from the monarchy of England. But you've got to understand what they were doing. They were appealing to the court of mankind, all the nations saying, it is time when a people have been so badly treated by one government to dissolve that relationship and establish a new government. And they appeal to what? The laws of nature and nature's God. In making that statement, they are appealing to all nations and leaders of nations to understand that there is a rule of law by God that governs all mankind. And that's where they're taking this court case, or divorce, if you will, from Great Britain. And they're appealing to the authority of God. That's what the Declaration is all about. I mean, come on, you've got to read this and understand that the, the entire Declaration of Independence is based on an appeal to God. That by His law and by His character, we shall no longer tolerate the treatment from England. It's an appeal to God Himself. All right? Now, let's take a look at the laws of nature and nature's God. When Thomas Jefferson wrote this, when the founders wrote this, they didn't come up with that out of their own mind and say, hey, this is a great idea. Listen to this phrase I came up with. They were drawing from a wealth of history that used that phrase. In fact, let me share with you John Locke, he, the Christian philosopher who had a great influence in America. The law of nature stands as an eternal rule to all men, legislators as well as others. The rules that they make for other men's actions must be conformable to the law of nature, i.e. to the will of God. Human laws must be made according to the general laws of nature and without contradiction to any positive law of Scripture. Otherwise, they are ill-made. That's why they're drawing on that phrase, the laws of nature and nature's God. As John Locke says, and has been declared universally, that it means Scripture. 
and what is revealed in the providence of God. William Blackstone is uh, really one of the main uh, lawyers in England, and he was cited more frequently than John Locke by the American founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson said that American lawyers used Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England with the same dedication and reverence that Muslims use the Koran. In other words, Blackstone's commentaries for legal law, which all the founding fathers would have been schooled in and brought up in, used this phrase quite often. And this is what William Blackstone says about the laws of nature and nature's God. Man, considered as a creature, must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator, for he is entirely a dependent being. And consequently, as man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should, in all points, conform to his maker's will. The will of his maker is called the law of nature. This law of nature, dictated by God himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe in all countries at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. And such of them are as valid derive all their force and their authority. The doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the Holy Scriptures. Upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, depend all human laws. That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. Understanding the term of the God of nature and nature's laws, understanding and hearing William Blackstone and John Locke, is there any doubt as to why they put that in the Declaration of Independence? They are appealing to the law of Scripture and the providential law of God in nature. They're appealing to God. Now what you're going to hear in a rewrite of history is that, oh, these founding fathers were just deists. These founding fathers weren't really that religious. That is absolutely foolish. These men were steeped in understanding what the law of nature and God's, uh, the, and nature's God, what it meant. It was a complete appeal to the authority of God over mankind and all governments and all rules. The Americas, the United States, was developed under the authority of a Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, how did they apply the Judeo-Christian ethic to these laws? What they decided was this. Why does this keep going backwards? This weird... Okay. For some reason, this thing is uh, giving me a little trouble. We'll get there. This is what they developed out of the Judeo-Christian ethic for the United States. Five points. All people are e have equal protection under God's law. That is what Scripture says. Two, all people are endowed by God with unalienable rights. You cannot alienate these rights from people because they're not given by people, they're given by God. So these are God's rights given to all mankind. People have a right to govern themselves according to their own consent. Someone can't come in and say, we're going to rule or govern you. That's tyranny. But a people can have the right to decide how to form a government. That's why 
the, the United States was declaring to the nation, we've decided to form our own government now because of mistreatment. People have the right to abolish unjust governments that violate their inalienable rights. And when you read the Declaration of Independence, it lists all the abuses that England was wreaking havoc over the states concerning their rights. People have a right to establish a government in their pursuit of liberty and their pursuit of happiness. So we will take a look at that even further. So what the Founding Fathers did after hearing the preaching and the teaching over 150 years the United States and the England continued to abuse the governing powers and authority, they declared based on the laws of nature and nature's God that they had the right to break from the government of Europe and establish their own government because God is the one who establishes unalienable rights to all people. Amen? George Washington put it this way, the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Now, let's take a look at how it impacted the Constitution. Let's see if you can discern some of those Judeo-Christian principles in the preamble of the Constitution. It says this, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our, poster our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So, you have to ask yourself, number one, who then gives power to the people of the United States? And they gave us seven general principles in the Constitution to protect themselves. So, number one, who gives authority and power? How does the Constitution, Constitution start? We, the people. So, it is by popular sovereignty, the people will govern themselves. Not kings, not monarchies, not tyrants, not those who would uh, rule and say by divine order, it is I and no one else. But it is in fact the people who will govern. And what form of government do they establish? A republic. A republic where they will vote. And so by this republic, people use the power to elect representatives. Therefore, listen, get this folks, it is essential, absolutely essential, that the citizens are well informed and elect people who will properly represent them. We're going to listen to some statistics as we go through this month. And I would tell you, if Christians would vote, this could be a very different nation from where we're at today. But most Christians don't even vote, which is an outrage. And a, a republic will not work, nor will it protect its people from special interest groups 
and financial groups and any other group if the people won't step up to the plate. Amen. Now, how is the power shared? Federalism. The concept is this. There is a federal government and then there are smaller ruling government officials that are called states. All right? There's a bit of an overlap there with these two powers. But this is what binds America together. States' rights and federal rights or national rights. And that is a balance of power that they wanted them to have. What's interesting is if you'll look and see where people settled in the United States, different religious groups settled in different states so that they had their freedom to worship as they wanted to. And the federal government could not stop the way they worshiped. That was the original point of separation of church and state, that the state or the federal government would not get into the church's business. But they have tweaked and changed that. We'll get into that another day. How many of you know when there was a crisis between state and federal government? Does anybody know the major crisis that broke out between this issue? It's called the Civil War. The Civil War. The popular and important topic in the Civil War was slavery, but the actual issue at hand was the fight between federal power and state power. Now, what the founders did, because again of Calvin's understanding and the teaching of Reformed doctrine, knowing that man is, what? Depraved. We have to spread the authority out. So they established a separation of powers. Three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but you can see the design. Again, this is a completely biblical design. You had kings, priests, and prophets. And all of this is based on Scripture to divide the authorities so that one would not rule uh, out of evil. Then they set and established a number of checks and balances so that one legislative branch would govern and rule or veto another. And by this, we don't have one person railroading the system. Last of all, they believed in limited government. Let me say that again. Limited government. I don't think I said it enough. Limited government. We are so out of whack with our original design that we have gotten into a place where we are lulled to where we want a federal government to do everything for us. And this violates the liberty of its citizens. And that liberty is going to be taken away in greater measure if we don't do something about it. Can we do something about it? Absolutely. The government hasn't changed yet. The system is still in place. If we will take advantage of this system built by godly people to operate by godly people, but we've abandoned the car and are sitting in the back seat. Last of all, we have the Bill of Rights, which was to protect, protect the unalienable rights given to us by God and defined by men. And so these individual rights are very important to us. And it is at this point where we begin to look at the Judeo-Christian ethic 
having its biggest impact on our nation. Because the Bill of Rights talks about those rights upon people's lives as citizens. That's where we come into the issue that we'll be studying this month, the Judeo-Christian ethic. And tonight, we are going to begin with the first one. The seven ethics are the dignity of human life, the traditional marriage and family, the national work ethic, a right to an education, the Abrahamic covenant, common decency, and a divinely ordered institutions of the home, civil government, and religious institutions. With these general principles, seven of them, of the Judeo-Christian ethic, with those in mind, as a Christian ethic, a nation will be prosperous, healthy, and well. And the United States has proven to be that. Based on Judeo-Christian ethics, this nation has risen to be the greatest nation on earth. But we are giving all of that up to secularism and a federal government because the Christians are not holding to the Christian form that this country was established under. Tonight, so I gave you that as a background to understand how the Founding Fathers established this nation on biblical principles. Now let's go into those issues and see how we did. The first principle that we're going to talk about tonight is the dignity of human life. Remember that all of this is framed under these two declarations, the laws of nature and nature's God, and the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are going to govern the Bill of Rights. Those are going to govern the Judeo-Christian ethic of the dignity of human life. Now, let's start there. Let's take a look at, again, our Declaration of Independence as it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. What does that mean? Truths that are self-evident. It's obvious. These are obvious truths. It's evident. I don't need to prove it to you. All men are created equal. Now, what amazes me is that they had the wisdom and the biblical direction to write that on paper, to document it, even though they failed miserably to institute it. Listen, I want to be very important to say this. I am not saying we need to go back to the good old days. Because unless you're a white landowner, <laughs> the good old days weren't good. If you were a woman or a child or black or any other uh, uh, typically nationality, it wasn't in your favor. So even though they wrote it this way, it didn't reach its full potential. But we're on or in a process. It's there, so let's fulfill it. It's as if it's a prophecy of what we can become. So let's pursue it. Let's go on. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what we're saying is the dignity of human life is this, that it is a God-given right for you to have life. We should respect that life and not take it from another. Not only do we st uh, start at every person having by God the right to live, 
but they have the right to liberty and they have the right to the pursuit of happiness. Now, as I said, this is in our founding documents. It's what we were supposed to do, but we didn't get there right away, did we? We're still working on that. And that's why we as Christians have got to press into this in a greater way. Let's take a look at that. Now, Genesis 1.26 said that God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So the first thing we see is that all man, all human beings are made in the image of God. And so the Judeo-Christian ethic is we are to respect human life and the life of others. That is the Judeo-Christian ethic. We should not waste life. We should not demean life. But we respect all who are created in the image of God. All right? Secondly, the next scripture from the law of God says, Thou shalt not kill. In the Hebrew it means, Thou shalt not murder. All right? There are times when it is necessary to kill. That's not an overall statement. Uh, we, uh, God initiated the killing of animals for sacrifice and the killing of animals for food and eating. And he instituted the death penalty to Noah that when you take a life, a life shall be taken and so forth. So it, doesn't, it means murdering. We're not to murder. Last of all, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine says, And the second command is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto me. There's a level of respect, and we're to treat others as you would want to be treated. So there is a dignity to human life. And we're to give dignity to all people. That's what should be happening. So let's take a look at this. How did we do as Americans? Right off the bat, we had a major problem, didn't we? They wrote it in violation of themselves. Interesting, isn't it? Say, slavery in America was a real issue. It was a real problem. But you have to understand one thing. In the South, with the large plantations and all that was taking place there, they were taking advantage and, and auctioning and buying human beings to run their plantations, treating them wickedly, horribly, and terribly. In the North, there were many who were severely opposed to this. In England, William Wilberforce was fighting against this desperately to stop it in, in England, and he was successful before the United States followed suit. But I would like you to look into and understand that this was an issue from the very beginning of the signing of the Declaration of Inst Independence. In 1776, Pastor Samuel Hopkins, a pastor, warned the members of the Continental Congress and he wrote this pamphlet delivering it to all those who were writing the Declaration and the Constitution. It was a warning to them and he said this. Th this is the title of his pamphlet. A dialogue concerning the slavery of Africans showing it to be the duty and interest of the American colonies to emancipate all their African slaves with an address to the owners of such slaves. He presented it to them as a warning to them that they must heed this. That if you're going to write that all men have freedom and inalienable rights by God, that all men are equal, how can you hold slaves? 
Isn't that a bit of a contradiction? And what is sad is that war that continued on and continued on until finally the judgment of God came upon this nation for that abuse. Abraham Lincoln himself declared that the reason so much blood was spilt through the Civil War was because of how many lives were lost through slavery. It was God's judgment on this nation. Look, at if you're going to stand for God and make declarations of God, God will discipline His people. Which is to say, the discipline of God should be coming swiftly and quickly again to this nation for the number of lives that we have aborted for the sake of convenience. If we want to uphold Christian tradition and the Judeo-Christian ethic, we better get on our knees as a Christian people and ask God to heal this land. Can I get an amen on that? Well, it's amazing, and it is the prophetic power of America and its purpose that right now we have an African-American president. We have a black man as a president. That's a declaration to what can be in this nation. Whether you like his politics or not, it does make a declaration that one time a man who would have been a slave is now running this nation. And so that is a great declaration to who we are and what we can become. It ain't over yet, folks. All these documents that declare these good things in God's Word, we can get back on course if we would take action and own these things. We've been marginalized as believers. We've been told to shut up and be quiet and take your religion elsewhere. Take it out of the public square. We're the ones who built the public square. We're the ones who established this country and its government. Why are we being marginalized and isolated? It's ridiculous. And if we don't stand and speak, we'll lose it all. We see with children's rights, Wilberforce was another great Christian man who brought uh, child labor laws, and they were brought over here. Do you know people used to use children of all ages in work, 14, 15 hours a day, not concerning the dignity of their human life, and those laws changed. And we, we, so the laws of slavery changed, the laws for children changed. Women were relegated to simple household chores and different things to where women were brought to a place of dignity and brought to a place of vote. So America, though it, didn't, it, it started off in its principles as correct, it's taking a while to get itself worked out as a people. But that is a good thing. We're making progress, I hope. Along with women's rights, there's the discussion of a woman's right to her own body. But there's another human body within her if she's pregnant. And we have now brought abortion into an issue to where we can wipe out human life for the convenience of it just cramping a lifestyle. It's used now more as a birth control issue than anything else. Human lives are being destroyed. And the blood is on our hands as a nation. We need to fight once again for this issue. Stem cell research, same thing. Using aborted, well, using fetuses and so forth. Euthanasia, the dignity of human life. Let's just cut people's lives off because their quality of life isn't what we think it should be. These are major issues concerning the dignity of human life. Right now, a greater number in the United States 
in, you heard it from Jody, is slavery to sex trafficking. We're concerned with human rights, but yet America is all but silent. It's just starting to now become an issue. It's been an issue uh, for years, but we've not done anything about it. This is because we want to have our porn and our illicit sex as often as we want, and we're trafficking human beings. This is an issue, brothers and sisters. This is an issue. So we must continue. And the people who understand the dignity of human life are those Christians and Jews who believe the Word of God. That's us. Let me close with this. The difference between equality and liberty. This is huge. And this is on the table today for what we have to deal with. There is a difference. When the Founding Fathers said the pursuit of life, which is the dignity of human life, and liberty, they didn't say equality. Because equality is measured differently than liberty. Formal equality is correct and absolutely important. That all people are created equal. Absolutely. And that the laws are, uh, all people are, uh, the laws apply equally to everyone. That is essential and compatible to liberty. But material equality is an issue. When people begin to say that everybody ought to be equal in wealth and resources, which is a major move of the government right now, saying that wealth should be dispersed evenly, wealth should be equal, and people should have an equal footing on all wealth, what happens is that begins to uh, impinge on people's liberty. It's called socialism, and it's eventually called communism. And when the government comes in to regulate how much money you can have and how much money you cannot have, how much land you can have and how much land you cannot have, you are now taking away people's personal liberty for the sake of equality. And that's why the Founding Fathers used the term liberty. Liberty is that the individual has the right and dignity to his own lot in life. There are many people who don't want a certain amount of money and are happy to have a certain amount of things. There are some who will work hard to pursue it. There are some who are disadvantaged not to have it. But there are some who, through their liberty, can give to another so that they can have. Liberty should actually protect the poor. Because through liberty, we, the church, can feed and care for them equally. Here's the ending illustration I give you between equality and liberty. The difference between France and the United States. The difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. The American Revolution was based on the Judeo-Christian ethic of liberty. The French Revolution was a bloodbath based on equality. Taking the bourgeois money and giving it equally to everybody and exterminating them for equality, it went rampant, it got out of control, and in France now the sense of equality is just a form of socialism, where, in fact, liberty gives man the ability through competition and a free market to raise and finance money that will help all people without the government taking their hand in. This is human dignity. This is the dignity of freedom 
These are the values of a Judeo-Christian ethic. And so I hope we'll understand that we are a Christian nation and we must get back on track. And the only people who know how to get it back on track are the, the Christians, the believers. Let's bow our heads.